0: Welcome to the Jewish Lives Podcast, a monthly show by Jewish Lives, the prize-winning biography series published by Yale University Press and the Leon D. Black Foundation. I'm your host, Alessandra Wallner. Today, we're looking at the man sometimes called the father of Zionism, Theodor Herzl. In the second half of the show, I'll sit down with Derek Penslar, author of the Jewish Lives biography, Theodor Herzl, The Charismatic Leader. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a friendly review. Thank you in advance. You can learn more about our books at jewishlives.org. Join us as we explore the Jewish experience together. On June 1st, 1901, Theodor Herzl had been working hard to sell the idea of a Jewish state. Six years in, his vision wasn't catching on the way he had hoped. So, in low spirits, Herzl sat down and did what he always did. He wrote in his diary. Once the Jewish state is in existence, everything will appear small and obvious, by which he means everything would fall into place. Feeling unsure, he writes more. All this, and my skill with negotiating with powers and princes are nothing. No one can appreciate what I have done, and what I have suffered. But today, the Jewish state does exist, and nearly every city within its borders has a street named for Herzl, a journalist-turned-Zionist hero, a man whose dream became a home for the Jewish people. That was Adulation of Venus from Tannhäuser, the opera by Wagner. It was Herzl's favorite. This piece of art was his touchstone, a source of both inspiration and solace throughout his life. Theodor Herzl was born in Pest, Hungary, in 1860, after revolution gave some European Jews more rights and freedom than ever before. A thoroughly assimilated European, Herzl's cultured upbringing was on display in his mastery of many languages. He spoke his native Hungarian as well as French, German, Italian, and even Latin and Greek, but no Yiddish or Hebrew. And despite having very little Jewish education or affiliation, as an adult, Herzl was deeply disturbed by the spread of anti-Semitism across Europe. He was haunted by the Jewish question. What could he do to help all Jews gain their full rights and live safely? Herzl was a lifelong diarist with a literary bent. He was enormously gifted with language. First, he studied law, but ultimately he became a playwright, journalist, and finally, a novelist. So, of course, Herzl was also a true believer in the power of words to create change. In 1895, he wrote a small book, a blueprint. It imagined the triumphant birth of a Jewish state— and it was meant to inspire his fellow Jews to take action. But in the space of a few weeks, Herzl's idea shifted. Here's Herzl from his diary again. I have been occupied with a work of infinite grandeur. It looks like a mighty dream, but for days and weeks it has possessed me beyond the limits of consciousness. It accompanies me wherever I go no longer writing fiction, he began planning every detail of his new Jewish state. For nine years, Herzl devoted himself to transforming Zionism into a widespread nationalist movement. Through force of will and using every connection he had Herzl found ways to present his vision in the halls of power. He met with every dignitary he could, from the Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid to Pope Pius X. But Herzl was fighting an uphill battle. He had critics on all sides. Many traditional Jews believed it was blasphemous to build a Jewish state ahead of the Messiah's arrival. And most Jewish philanthropists thought Herzl's ideas dangerous. They could jeopardize the hard-won credibility of assimilated European Jews. And all those heads of state? They mostly found Herzl's ideas outlandish. But Herzl was undeterred, and he didn't wait for a political mandate to advance his cause. He started a Zionist newspaper, collaborated on the launch of a Zionist bank, Founded the International Zionist Organization and helped put Zionism on the map in Europe. Herzl never did get to see his Zionist dream come true. He died of pneumonia at age 44. It would be another 44 years before the State of Israel was established. It's almost unbelievable, though, that one man's dream could start a new nation. And yes, Herzl had his doubts, but he still worked feverishly to pursue his dream. What was the secret to his passion, his drive? Actually, it's no secret; it's right there in one of his most famous sayings: "If you will it, it is no dream." And if you do not will it, a dream it is, and a dream it will stay. Explore a masterful new biography of Theodore Herzl by eminent historian of Zionism, Derek Penslar, in Theodore Herzl, The Charismatic Leader. For a limited time only, save 25%, plus get free shipping. Use code Herzl at checkout, available only at jewishlives.org. Hi, Derek Penzler, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Theodor Herzl was an assimilated Jew from Western Europe. So how did someone really far removed from Jewish tradition become the leader of the Zionist movement?
1: Uh, Theodor Herzl was born in an era when it was very hard for a Jewish person, no matter how they might try to assimilate, uh, to ever forget that they were Jewish. He was born in Budapest uh, in Hungary. He moved when he was a late teenager to Vienna. And in these cities, Jews were a very visible minority. They, uh, there was a good deal of anti-Semitism. And although Herzl definitely was assimilated and he was secular, he was never not aware of his Jewishness. It was just a question of what he was going to do with it.
0: So on that same topic, Herzl wasn't the first Zionist, but he was the Zionist who legitimized the cause. How was he able to bring it out of obscurity and turn it into this internationally recognized movement?
1: What's funny is that Herzl himself at first did not use the word Zionist. Uh, The word Zionist was only invented uh, more than a decade after modern Jewish nationalism began and movements to settle Jews in uh, the land of Israel. So Herzl... uh, when he came across the word Zionist, he had already become something that he couldn't even describe. He'd become attached to the cause of the Jews to return to the Holy Land, but he didn't even have the word Zionism in his head. And he wasn't part of traditional East European Jewish society. And he had connections through his journalistic career and through his powers of persuasion. He was able to attract all sorts of Jews who trusted him or admired him or or venerated him in a way that they wouldn't have felt towards just another Eastern European Jew. He was something quite special in his appearance, in his manner, and particularly in his charisma, which is one of the central themes of the book.
0: About that charisma, what was it that made him so inspiring to Zionists of his era?
1: You know, charisma is something that's very hard to quantify. It's not just a question of of looks, although he was a a, a remarkably good-looking man. But that doesn't explain charisma. It's a certain quality of being of people who radiate a kind of energy that people find attractive. So, charisma is one of the most important things to understand political leadership. It's also one of the most difficult to explain.
0: You just also mentioned Herzl's physical appearance. And in the book, you do talk about how his physical appearance had a particular resonance for Jews. Can you describe that a little?
1: Well, one thing is that by the standards of his time, he was tall, he was five foot eight which doesn't sound very tall to us today but he was about 3 inches above normal height so he was he wasn't huge but he was the equivalent of being something over 6 feet today and i suppose his most defining feature was his beard he grew when he was in his 30s he grew a very long uh, luxuriant dark black beard and it looked like something from an ancient biblical prophet, or uh, the term that was used was Assyrian, from the ancient Assyrian empire. So he he had this look of almost a, a biblical or an ancient Middle Eastern figure wearing late 19th century clothes.
0: Earlier, you also mentioned that it would be very hard in Herzl's time to forget that you were Jewish. So Herzl was very preoccupied with the Jewish question, meaning how to keep Jews safe in rising anti-Semitism. So... What was he seeing that made this issue all-consuming for him?
1: Well, again, Herzl dealt with anti-Semitism his entire life, and he was particularly worried about it in Vienna. His native Vienna, well, not native Vienna because he was from Budapest, but he lived so much of his life in, in Vienna, really fell under the sway of antisemitism in the mid-1890s. And he was exposed to anti-Semitism in France, and he wrote about it for the newspaper. Uh, he was the Paris correspondent for a very prominent Viennese newspaper and he he covered the trial of uh, of Captain Alfred Dreyfus who was um, tried for treason and falsely convicted at the end of 1890 uh, 1894 but there's no real evidence that it was the Dreyfus trial <clears throat> or the Dreyfus scandal in and of itself that made Herzl uh, sort of rediscover his Jewishness and and ultimately become a Zionist. He doesn't really write about Dreyfus very much at all in his private writings until much later. It seems to be largely what was going on in Vienna.
0: Also, going back to something you just said, he was a journalist and a very prolific writer across a lot of genres, and his ideas were pretty controversial among both Jews and non-Jews. Can you talk about how his thinking evolved over time and what some of those signature things were
1: When he became inspired and turned to Zionism, he uh, had all kinds of ideas which struck many people at the time as odd. I mean, the whole notion of um, engineering some kind of mass emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe to uh, Palestine, which was part of the Ottoman Empire, it seemed absurd for all kinds of reasons, technical reasons. Could it even, who, who would pay for this? Would the Ottoman Empire allow such a thing? But he did, he, he did find an audience. There were some Jews, particularly young students, Jewish students from Eastern Europe, and uh, Herzl became something of a hero to them. So it's amazing as how fast it happened, that he turns to Zionism in 1895, he publishes his pamphlet on the Jewish state in 1896, he convenes the Zionist Congress in 1897, and within three, four years, he's the rock star of, uh, of the Jewish world.
0: During his time, there were a number of factions of Zionists or Jewish nationalists with its own concerns and motivations each. So how would you describe Herzl's brand of Zionism?
1: Well, Herzl was seen by some of these people as an interloper because, uh, as I said, uh, the idea that Jews constituted a nation and that they should have some kind of modern connection with the land of Israel goes back to the early 1880s. So there were groups throughout, especially Eastern Europe, called in Hebrew, Hovavetsion, or in English, Lovers of Zion. And they had been around. And then Herzl appears on the scene. He'd never heard of these people. He'd never read their work. And he's talking as if he's reinventing the wheel. So a lot of people who'd been involved in these organizations were resentful of Herzl. Then there were Orthodox Jews. There were some Orthodox Jews who supported Zionism, if for nothing else, philanthropic reasons. They, they were worried about poor and, and persecuted Jews in Eastern Europe. So again, they wanted a kind of a quiet, slow process, uh, not, not, not a big visible uh, one of, of diplomacy with great world leaders to get some sort of permission to settle Jews by the millions in, in Palestine. So there were a lot of Orthodox uh, Zionists who were not happy with Herzl.
0: And in contrast to those observant Jews, whether they're Orthodox or just more religious than he was, he was very non-observant throughout his whole life. So speaking of what he did or didn't want for a Jewish homeland, what was his vision?
1: Herzl, it was interesting. On one level, his views about religion were very open-minded. You know, he envisioned a Jewish homeland in which people of all religions would live freely and on equal terms. Uh, He was a man of great aesthetic uh, principles he 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 loved beauty and he found beauty in religion and he writes about religion sometimes very beautifully and not long before he died, he wrote a beautiful quote he wrote, Zionism was the Sabbath of my life, and that doesn't mean that he wanted to observe the Sabbath, but he saw Zionism as just as for the Jewish people the Sabbath is is, is what gives you rest it's what gives you a chance to recover and sort of re- recollect yourself and figure out what really matters in life.
0: And you totally took my next question because I was going to ask you about that quote, Zionism was the Sabbath of my life, because it's very evocative.
1: It is. It's really very beautiful. Uh, and, and you know, Herzl is often thought by his critics to have been superficial. And there was the great Russian Zionist, Ahada Am, which was a pen name for Asher Ginsberg, who wrote of Herzl that he was basically just an assimilated Jew who didn't know anything about Judaism, and that all he wanted to do was create in Palestine a kind of carbon copy of Vienna with coffee houses and uh, secular culture. And on one level, he's right. But on another level, he totally misses the point that Herzl's liberalism, his his humanitarianism and his cosmopolitanism was intensely Jewish. It was that yearning of Jews for a society in which they can be be accepted. Uh, And Herzl again, he did have respect. He had respect for those religious Zionists. And he even wrote once that what defines us as Jews is our faith. He wrote this. We we are defined by our faith. Even if we're not observant, somehow it's the religion that ultimately makes us Jews, and then we go on from there.
0: And in the end of the book, you turn to his legacy or how he's been mythologized. And you write that in Israel, every political camp and each generation has invented its own Herzl. So what's his significance in Israel today? And also in the U.S. and Europe, where anti-Semitism is rising again, does he have a different significance? Well, Herzl
1: died in 1904, 116 years ago. And yet there's something about him It has an effect on people and people are still either inspired by him or people are still angry at him. So whether it is the Israeli left that uses Herzl to justify their own vision for a more democratic and egalitarian society in the spirit of Herzl's novel Old New Land, or whether it's the Zionist right who see in Herzl a man who uh, turned away from anti-Semitism, turned away from Europe and wanted to create... uh, a a Jewish state where Jews would be free from persecution. And the face of Herzl is everywhere. So when you write a book about Herzl, who dies 116 years ago, you realize that this is not a biography of somebody from a century ago. It's very much current events.
0: And why is that? Why is he still so current?
1: That's a good question. I think part of it has to do with the appearance of a man who was so quintessentially European, and yet who then rediscovered his Jewish roots. That's a very powerful story. It's a story that has an echo in Jewish tradition in, in Moses. I think for a lot of Jews, the world over Herzl becomes a second Moses. You know, Moses is raised assimilated in Egypt, the prince of Egypt, who then discovers the suffering of his brethren and comes to their aid. Uh, so the story is very appealing to Jews. And the things that he wrote the way he wrote. He had he had a tremendous style. So when people read his work today, it, it speaks to them. Maybe other nationalist leaders weren't quite as effective. He was, you know, as we talked about, a truly great journalist. He was a he was a great communicator. And I think that the Jewish world is a world that still very much wants to interpret Zionism through the lens of heroism. And Herzl in his life and in his very tragic death he becomes, to use an American example, kind of like a combination of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln in that he's a founder like Washington or Jefferson, but he's also a martyr like Lincoln. Uh, and so all these things come together and they, it means that Herzl has so much more meaning for people interested in Zionism than a lot of his contemporaries who were founders of other other national movements elsewhere in the world.
0: And final question If you could speak to Theodor Herzl, is there anything you'd ask or anything you'd say?
1: I guess I would ask him why he did it. I'd want to hear from his own mouth why he made this decision, because many, many Jews were exposed to anti-Semitism in Vienna, in Budapest, in Paris, and only a small number became Zionists. So the question is, why did he... And I would just want so much to contact, to be in contact with him in person, to be able to experience what it was that would send otherwise very practical, rather um, stoic men into a state of rapture when they met him. I would want to be exposed to that charisma firsthand.
0: Thank you so much, Derek Pensler. What a great conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the great questions. I love getting a question I've never gotten before. That's a, <laughs> that, was, that was a good one.
0: The Jewish Lives Podcast is made possible by the Leon D. Black Foundation. Special thanks to our partners at Yale University Press, Jewish Lives Editorial Director Eileen Smith, series editors Anita Shapira and Stephen J. Zipperstein, Managing Director Rebecca Keyes, and to Linda Brennan and Ruby Elliott Zuckerman. The Jewish Lives Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Alessandra Wallner. Our music is composed by Barry J. Cohen. Groucho Marx once said, Outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Watch for forthcoming Jewish Lives titles, including Harry Houdini, Stan Lee, Stanley Kubrick, and Heinrich Heine. Learn more about our books at jewishlives.org.